Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm David McKechnie. In Ukraine, the weekend's presidential election runoff brought a stunning victory for a comedian-turned-politician who has promised to root out corruption and try to end the bloody war with Russia in the east of the country. Can Vladimir Zelensky really overhaul Ukrainian politics? Daniel McLaughlin will give us his assessment later from Kiev. But first to Brexit. An MP's return to Westminster today after their Easter break. No closer to finding a way to leaving the EU and just a month away from European Parliament elections that nobody wants to take part in after the EU extended the UK's withdrawal period until October 31st. Theresa May is on borrowed time. The Tories are still talking to Labour. Nigel Farage is back on the scene. And nobody would be shocked if we saw a post-Easter resurrection of Mrs May's withdrawal agreement. London editor Dennis Staunton joins us to look at what might happen in the weeks ahead. Dennis, first of all, MPs must have been a little reluctant to return today. What are the government's immediate priorities in this new phase of the saga? Well, the first thing is to uh, keep these talks going with Labour. They've, uh, they're meeting today and uh, we're told they're expected to meet again over the next uh, few days. It's a, it's a curious thing about these talks that nobody seems to think they have any hope of succeeding. And yet at the same time, the people involved seem to be quite serious about them. And so it's uh, you know, so certainly I think these talks are going to continue. And the idea would be that uh, they would try to find some common approach to Brexit which they would then put to Parliament and then hope to win a majority. If they can't find a common approach, then what they would do, they thought, would be to try to agree a series of options which would be put to indicative votes. But what may happen instead of any of that is that Theresa May, just before the break, she said that uh, if they wanted to get out of the European Union uh, in time for um, for the European elections, in other words, to avoid having these European elections on the 23rd of May, she'd have to bring forward the legislation, the Withdrawal Agreement and Implementation Bill, which is the implementing legislation that you need to make Brexit happen, and that she has to bring that forward quite soon. And what might happen there is that you would have a series of amendments to that, which would effectively be these votes. So you might have an amendment on staying in a customs union, you might have another amendment on having a second referendum. And so that would be another way of testing the opinion of Parliament. And are we talking about, uh, you know, next week or in the, in the week ahead? And h- how much time do these talks have realistically between, between Conservatives and Labour? I think the talks will continue for the next uh, couple of days anyway. And then I think probably we are talking about next week if, uh, if, uh, if she is to bring this legislation forward, that it probably has to happen, uh, you know, begin the process next week because it will go on for some time with, this, uh, with all of these amendments. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's even though even talking about it now, it's still it's it's still very hard to see how you are, are going to get a majority for any form of the withdrawal agreement, uh, because a lot of the people who already voted for her withdrawal agreement last time, uh, you know, some of the Brexiteers have now decided that they wouldn't vote for it this time round. And as you mentioned, the uh, you know the European Union has given an extension of six months to uh, the Brexit date. That in a way has kind of taken off some of the pressure. 
yeah, and so there's a, a sense that you know that everybody still feels as if they can get what they want. So if you want a hard Brexit, if you're a Brexiteer, then you think that you really just have to wait for six months and you'll get it. If you want a second referendum, you certainly think that uh, there's no point in voting in favour of a deal now because time might give you a chance to have this second referendum. And so uh, you know it's hard to see how you get this uh, through. The other factor that's going to play into everything that happens is the European uh, uh, Parliament elections. So if you don't get uh, a deal in time, these elections will go ahead. And right now, the people who are ahead in the polls are Nigel Farage's newly formed Brexit party. And they seem to be taking so far most of their vote uh, from uh, people who did vote UKIP in the past and from conservative voters. And a lot of conservatives seem to be prepared to vote for this Brexit party for the European Parliament elections, whether they would continue to vote for them in other elections or not, is another matter. But certainly that has spooked the Conservatives big time. They launched their campaign this morning and you were, you were at that, the Brexit Party announced some of its candidates anyway for the elections. What, what was that event like? Uh, there must be a great sense of optimism given the polling. Yeah, there is. And uh, Nigel Farage was saying that he uh, that the project he was undertaking now was the most ambitious he ever did, because he said that uh, the European elections were only going to be the start. What they wanted to do was to completely remake the political system, to break up the two-party system. They said that he said that Parliament was no longer representative of the people. And he unveiled this uh, s- uh, series of candidates. They've already unveiled some, and there'll be more to come. One of them was Claire Fox, who uh, appears on... Uh, uh, the BBC Radio 4 programme, The Moral Maze, and she's often uh, pops up as a pundit on, uh, on television. She was a former member of the Revolutionary Communist Party years ago. And like many people who belong to that particular group, she's moved over to the libertarian right and runs a thing called the Institute of Ideas. But she presented herself as being a person of the left uh, who was arguing that this uh, that Brexit was, no long, was not a right or left issue, that it was an issue about claiming democracy. And so uh, you know, certainly all of the polls does look good for them. Nigel Farage said that they were doing very well among conservative voters and they had squeezed UKIP into a corner uh, because UKIP has moved very much to the the radical anti-Muslim right and that he was now going to go after Labour votes because, uh, you know, five million Labour voters voted for Brexit and uh, he wants to get their votes. So he said he's going to spend most of the campaign in places like South Wales and the Midlands and north of England uh, targeting Labour voters. I guess looking at, at those the polling figures and, and, and Farage's emergence there and, and words, the Tories are probably the ones who want the May 23rd elections least, are they? Yes, they're, they're going to be particularly unwelcome for the Conservatives. And, they, and one of the things that uh, they're likely to feed into is uh, the succession to Theresa May. There's a lot of talk around Westminster this morning that the 1922 committee of backbench MPs, that their uh, senior officers are meeting today and they're going to talk about maybe changing the rules. Because if you remember, uh, Theresa May survived a confidence vote within her party in December, and that, under the current rules, leaves her immune from another challenge until this coming December. And so uh, what there's talk about is that they would somehow change the rules so that she could be forced to, to go earlier, or perhaps more likely that they would go to her and say, if you don't announce that you're going to go, say, in June, then uh, you know we're going to seek this rule change. Now, 
changing the rules and getting rid of her quickly would probably favour people like Boris Johnson and Dominic Raab, the harder Brexiteers among the candidates, because if she does announce she's going, say, in early June, that would come on the heels probably of a disastrous result in the European Parliament elections where the Conservatives would have lost a lot of their votes to the Brexit party. And the argument that people like Boris Johnson would be able to make is the only way that we can keep our vote together at all, the only way we have any chance of winning another election is to shore up those Brexit voters. And that means taking a tough approach to Brexit, seeking a renegotiation of the withdrawal agreement, which the European Union says is not on the cards. And if uh, if they can't get a change to the withdrawal agreement, simply going for a no-deal Brexit in uh, at the end of October. So those hard Brexiteers would like Theresa May to go early. Other candidates who are, don't belong to that group uh, would prefer probably uh, for Theresa May to stay uh, during uh, you know, through the summer, and perhaps to somehow manage to get Brexit finished and get the deal through, uh, so that they won't have to face that problem. Now, in the shorter term, if say the, these talks break down this week between the Conservatives and Labour, just the, the next stage then after that next next week or, or so, what what can we expect? I, I think what would happen then would be that uh, you know, I think first of all, you know, they they could break down completely, or what they may do is that they fail to agree on a common approach on most of it, but they might say agree on some on some areas like, say, in, continuing environmental protection, you know, keeping EU laws and environmental protection, workers' rights, something like that. So there, you may have a kind of a, a bit of a, an agreement, but not not really a full uh, a full blown agreement. But anyway, if they don't uh, succeed in, in, in agreeing a common position, then I think probably it is likely that next week you will see uh, this bill being brought forward the uh, withdrawal agreement and implementation bill uh, just because uh, you know in a way she probably has to just give it one last shot and hope that uh, you know that, that the MPs including those in her own party will just think this is our last chance to get Brexit done without having to go through these European Parliament elections. It then means that she can go and that they, the Conservatives can choose a successor in a, in a, a calmer environment. And they could think about uh, the, the leader that they want in a way for the post-Brexit era, somebody who's going to focus on issues other than Brexit. So I think that you know, she will probably seek to do that. But it does look as if those numbers are very difficult, and particularly given that the DUP uh, does want to have a new leader of the Conservative Party because they feel that the new leader is likely to be a Brexiteer, is likely to be more sympathetic to their concerns, and also that uh, they will have to negotiate a new confidence and supply agreement to support the government and that the new leader will want to have their support because the new leader won't want to face a general election soon. Dennis Staunton, we'll watch with, with interest. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Next to Ukraine. And Volodymyr Zelensky's victory in Sunday's presidential election has propelled the former comedian and the country into uncharted territory. Zelensky garnered almost three quarters of the vote in the runoff against incumbent Petro Poroshenko. A huge endorsement for him, as well as a decisive rejection of Ukraine's old politics. So what can we expect from the man who is swapping playing a president in a TV show for the real thing? And how might his term influence Ukraine's key relationships with Russia and the EU? I'm joined on the line by Daniel McLaughlin, who's been reporting on the elections for the Irish Times from Kiev. Dan, the scale of Zelensky's victory was remarkable. How much does it matter in terms of giving him a mandate to make the changes he wants to make? 
It's certainly the kind of victory that he would have wanted, um, an absolutely dominant victory, a clear signal from the people that they want change. I mean, that's the most important thing. I think that's what he's been emphasizing, certainly in his campaign and since he won, that this does give him a huge mandate for change. What he can effectively do isn't with that public support is another question. The president here does have a certain number of powers. For example, Zelensky's already saying, or his team is already saying, that uh, some of his priorities will be to kickstart the uh, anti-corruption drive, put uh, new people in charge of the prosecutor general service, uh, the security service of Ukraine, uh, the defense minister. But a huge amount rests on how uh, he will be able to cooperate with Parliament. We're coming to the end of the parliamentary term. Parliamentary elections are due in October. Um, and really, uh, Zelensky can't rest on his laurels for very long. He really has to try and generate a lot of support, build up his own party ahead of the parliamentary elections to try and have um, an amenable new set of deputies uh, at the end of the year who he can work with to get his reforms through. Were there any indications today, it was the first day of Parliament since, since the weekend elections, was there any indications of, of how that might go or what, what happened today in Parliament? Things are just sort of shaking out really, people giving their initial uh, reactions to the Zelensky win. Interesting that the, the Prime Minister, Volodymyr Groisman, who's been close to President Poroshenko, has worked with him very closely in recent years, uh, has immediately said that he won't be campaigning with Poroshenko's party for the uh, parliamentary elections. He's going to look to maybe create his own party, join a different party, but certainly push a pro-reform agenda. It's not clear whether th these are the first moves in him trying to align himself with Zelensky. That's, we, we, we don't have any indication of that yet. And also people calling on Zelensky from different parties to come into parliament and lay out very clearly what his manifesto is. This was one of the interesting things about his election campaign. He was pretty vague on what he wants to do, very general pledges to fight corruption, try and make society and the economy operate in a more equitable way, try and redistribute wealth more fairly in Ukraine, try to end the war in the East, these kinds of things. But he was very short on detail. So a lot of deputies today wanting to hear more details from uh, Zelensky as quickly as possible. And uh, But there is a definitely a feeling in the air that people are gearing up for those parliamentary elections already. President Poroshenko, uh, when he accepted defeat on uh, Sunday night, said that the next day from Monday, he and his allies would start fighting to protect the gains as he sees them that he's achieved over the last five years, starting with the um, with that uh, parliamentary election later this year. So Poroshenko will be fighting very hard for it. Yulia Tymoshenko, a very familiar politician who's been around for 20 years and came third in the first round of the election, she'll be fighting very hard um, in the parliamentary elections. And who knows, at the end of it, one of those two familiar figures, Poroshenko and uh, Tymoshenko, may even be pushing for a post of prime minister. Um, we'll see in, uh, in, in the autumn. Now, if Zelensky's policy positions seemed a little uh, raw or unformed during the last few weeks of campaigning, what did we learn about him over those weeks, even as a, as a personality or as somebody who who obviously managed the, the campaign very successfully in the end? Yeah, his, I think his team, he and his team did come up with a very smart campaign in that they, they realised that five years after the Maidan revolution, which was a time when Ukrainians came out on the streets and they ousted their 
their uh, Kremlin-backed president at that time, Viktor Yanukovych, because they wanted these very fundamental changes. They wanted cleaner politics. They wanted an end to corruption. And in the, the five subsequent years, they didn't think Poroshenko had done anywhere near enough to do that. Um, so there was a general feeling of um, absolute disillusionment with the established politicians. Zelensky did his best to uh, basically define himself in opposition to the entire political elite. So he didn't campaign in the usual way. He didn't go out on a big campaign tour. He didn't hold mass rallies. He didn't make long speeches. He didn't make uh, extravagant promises. His team was very good on social media. They hit people every day with uh, snappy little messages and posts, short films, which really caught people's imagination, not just people who had voted several times before and were, were sick of the the, the standard options that they were being given again by people like Poroshenko and Timoshenko, but a lot of younger Ukrainians who hadn't voted before and hadn't really been interested in politics. Suddenly they saw this guy that they knew very well from the TV, from his comedy shows and from this, this uh, series, Servant of the People, in which he plays a fictional president, a teacher who becomes president. Um, and they got interested in, in, in politics and the election that way. So he did everything he could to, to be basically be a fresh face, to be someone new. And he emphasized as well, um, including in the debate when he finally faced Poroshenko on Friday night in the main football stadium here, he, he kept saying, I'm, you know, I voted for you, he said to Poroshenko five years ago, but, but I was disappointed, just like lots of Ukrainians. Um, and I'm an ordinary person who's come here to try and break this system. Um, because we can see that the, the the cadre of politicians we've been looking at for so long is is um, incapable or, or unwilling to do it. Um, so that's what he's promising, a completely new broom, new faces in politics, a new style of politics, much more open, much more accessible, much more transparent. Um, but he will undoubtedly face, if, if he really does threaten vested interests, he will face very, very strong opposition from an elite, a business and a political elite that is still very strong in, in Parliament. He obviously played a good game uh, and, and, and is an intelligent guy. Um, but, I mean, how much credit do we give to him personally for, for the success or, or the team around him? And, and, and who are those kind of, who are those people who might have a bit more experience than he does in, in politics? They're obviously going to be quite important uh, in, in, the, in the months ahead. Yeah, they're going to be very important. And this is a, a key question, really. Who are the people who are shaping his opinions? Who are the people who he is going to look to, who, who he's going to empower to make these changes, basically. He's saying that he's going to be a good manager and he's going to, to find experts who are um, at the top of their field in the different key areas and he's going to give them the power and the freedom to make the changes. Um, when we look at some of the advisors he's appointed, they are people who are very well regarded um, by NGOs, by anti-corruption organizations and by people in the West, by diplomats here. Um, Alexander Daniel Yuk has, has been a prominent face. He's a former finance minister who seems to be advising uh, Zelensky on financial and economic issues, crucial for Ukraine when it has to deal with um, its Western lenders and, and the uh, International Money, Monetary Fund to keep funds flowing from the West. Um, Anti-corruption experts, there's a guy called um, uh, Ruslan Reboshapka, who is a well-regarded anti-corruption expert here. He looks like he's going to have a say in how um, the anti-graft, anti anti-corruption anti reforms are put together. Um, and then there's another group that, um, that have been more involved in the campaign, uh, people do, working the social media, 
he has a spokesman uh, called Razumkov, who um, who's, who is quite prominent now. Um, and he's been sort of a, a, a political technologist, a spin doctor, as they call it here, a spin doctor, I suppose you would say. Um, uh, for a while, he's been around and he hasn't got an altogether unblemished background. Um, people have looked at some of the people he's been associated with before and said, well, we're not entirely sure that this is a reform-minded character. Um, but he's a prominent spokesman already for Zelensky. Um, and he has said that in the, uh, he did just before the election, actually, on uh, late last week, I think it was Thursday night, he did reveal some more faces um, who he said would be involved in um, defense reform, a potential defense minister, um, a former head of the um, National Security Services, a guy called Smishko, who actually did quite well in the election himself and came fourth or fifth in the first round, fifth, I think, in the first round, has been named as a possible head of the security service here. So there are a few faces, but uh, just like the policies, um, those individual characters and uh, their backgrounds and what they really intend to do and what they would do with power, uh, all that remains to be seen and, and to be crystallized in the weeks and months ahead, really. Now, there are a couple of, of course, high-profile issues involving Russia. One, uh, that Zelensky has made some commitments uh, to, one, ending the conflict in the East, which has killed about 13,000 people so far. And then he also said on election night that he wanted all Ukrainians captured by Russia during the war to be freed. So how might he go about those things and, and, and how might he realign the relationship with Russia uh, through, through those issues? Uh, it's very hard to see. I mean, Russia really holds all the cards as regards the East. Um, it continues to prop up the, the separatists that control parts of Donetsk and Lugansk regions. It continues ultimately to make the big decisions uh, regarding those areas. There was talk just before the election that Russia might be ready even to hand out Russian passports to people living in those uh, separatist-controlled parts of Donetsk and Lugansk, which would escalate the conflict. So Russia may be looking to test Zelensky in some way. We'll see. Zelensky will uh, actually take over the powers of, of President from Poroshenko probably sometime next month, sometime before early June, certainly. And there were, uh, one, actually, one of Poroshenko's main lines of attack against uh, Zelensky was that he would be completely out of his depth in dealing with Putin and that he may even have a, some kind of pro-Russian sympathies himself. So in the last few days, certainly on election night and afterwards, he has, Zelensky has focused strongly on his commitment to maintaining and defending Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty, uh, not making any concessions to Russia that would hand over territory to Russia or that would give Moscow undue influence on the future direction of Ukraine. Zelensky said he will stick to the strategic direction that Ukraine has now, moving towards the EU, moving towards NATO, working very, very closely with the West. Um, as regards bringing back those um, those prisoners, all the prisoners, as you said, that, uh, that Russia has taken in five years of, of the conflict, it's, there's not really very much that Zelensky can do. What he can hope for is that perhaps as some kind of gesture from Russia, um, a, a way to um, make a step, a small step towards Zelensky, perhaps, Russia could look to release some of them, um, some of those prisoners uh, soon after, uh, leading up to Zelensky's inauguration or shortly afterwards to try and say, OK, Poroshenko's gone now. Maybe we can we can start off on a new footing. Um, there's no indication of that yet. The Kremlin has been very, very cautious. 
Um, as of yesterday, at least, the, the Kremlin hadn't even sent congratulations to Zelensky, and the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, uh, "We have to judge Zelensky on his actions rather than any any words or any um, any positive messages that he may send." Um, as for the 24 sailors taken uh, last November in a clash in the Black Sea. Uh, there's no sign of Russia releasing them. Russia continues to say that uh, they have to go through the full trial process. They're accused of illegally entering Russian waters, a, a charge that they and, and Ukraine officially denies. Um, so that, pro that trial, it seems, would have to come to its conclusion, and then they would perhaps have to ask for a pardon from Putin, and then he could potentially grant it. But all of those things certainly at the moment look, look a long way off. The reaction from the West has been uh, quite positive. Um, and as you say, he did commit to, to maintaining close relationship with, with the EU and the West. Um, can we expect a continuation of Poroshenko's policies, essentially, and, and, and that relationship to, to, to continue in the same, the same vein? Yeah, I think we can. Um, I think certainly in terms of foreign policy, that's something that Zelensky will not want to touch. Um, partly because it's absolutely crucial for, for Ukraine under the, the pressure and facing the aggression that it does face from Russia. It, it, it needs the maximum support from the West, uh, financial support, diplomatic support, the, uh, the arms and the, and the military training that it's getting from some Western states as well. So he really can't risk losing that. Um, he can't risk losing it for Ukraine's uh, own, for, for security and uh, I suppose geostrategic, geopolitical interests, but also because it would be taken very, very badly by, by most people in Ukraine. And it would cause a very strong reaction from people like Poroshenko and Timoshenko, uh, who would be quite ready to... Uh, I would say to bring people out on the streets if they did see that that's certainly what they've said that they would react very strongly they would bring people out if they see this western alignment of Ukraine being threatened by Zelensky um Zelensky did meet some western diplomats some western ambassadors here in Kiev before the election just to try and reassure them a little bit that there weren't going to be any dramatic changes. And of course, shortly before the election, the week before the election, he traveled to Paris and met uh, Emmanuel Macron, which was quite a surprise. He met Macron a few hours before Poroshenko met Macron. And thinking is that uh, probably Western leaders, including Macron, have been delivering, they've been sort of sounding out Zelensky and his team a bit, making sure that he, he does still have that pro-Western orientation. And also probably trying to um, to get from Poroshenko uh, assurances that if he was defeated, he would accept it and there would be a smooth transition of power and perhaps to check with Zelensky and to try and uh, steer him towards avoiding any uh, retribution towards Poroshenko and his circle as we go through this transition of power. It would, could certainly get very messy for Ukraine if you start to see uh, kind of clan wars between Zelensky's people, Poroshenko's people, and and legal measures immediately being used to to try and punish Poroshenko and his people as it could be seen. So I think Western leaders will be very keen to see a smooth transition. They've praised the election process, which was much more, uh, much calmer, and much more uh, peaceful and much cleaner than a lot of people expected. Um, so, so far, I think the reaction is is indeed positive the West, from the West, but they'll be keeping a close eye on, on Zelensky and the appointments he makes to, to, uh, to make sure that he stays on that pro-Western track. Now, he made uh, fighting, uh, fighting corruption a plank of his campaign. I guess that's probably the issue he, he'll want to make progress on uh, quickly, given, you know, to, to make an impression ahead of the, these parliamentary elections. 
Yeah, that's going to be a key thing. That's certainly what his team have said will be the priority, um, not just uh, reinvigorating this this somewhat beleaguered anti-corruption drive uh, that's that's been uh, that's gone very very slowly under Poroshenko, and that often he's only made crucial steps and only introduced key measures under strong pressure from the West. So yeah, Zelensky will look to get uh, an anti-corruption court up and running. That's something that Poroshenko has already said that he he would do. That it's something that he launched officially uh, about a week or so before the election. But uh, Zelensky will look to get that up and running. People will be looking for uh, a complete reset of the judicial system. Really. Uh, Hardly any judges have been removed through uh, a, a reattestation process, as they called it, which was supposed to clean out corrupted and compromised judges. Almost all of them are still in place. So even if the uh, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, which is working reasonably well, manages to get cases against powerful people into court, they often come unstuck um, because judges are still uh, deeply unreliable here. And what else Zelensky's? Yeah, he's also said a couple of his key um, pieces of legislation that he'll be looking to put through very early on will be uh, a process for impeachment of the president to show that he's not scared of responsibility uh, in front of parliament and the people. And also he'll be asking deputies to vote to lift their own uh, immunity from prosecution. That will be a real test. If, if deputies are ready to go for that, that will that will show that they are um, potentially ready for major changes and to accept uh, curbs on their power that so far, at least, they've been um, they've been very, very strong to resist. Are there still concerns about um, Zelensky's re- relationship with the oligarch Igor Kolomoski, um, whose channel broadcasts his shows and, and the, what influence he might have on, on the administration? Is that still an issue? Yeah, it is. It's still a big question. Um, this channel, One Plus One, it's one of the major channels here. It's very popular. Um, it's owned by Igor Kolomoisky, um, who fell out very strong. I mean, it's in, he's had an interesting story. I mean, back in 2014-15, uh, Poroshenko really relied on Kolomoisky to make sure that one of the major regions in, in uh, eastern Ukraine, the Dnipropetrovsk region, Dnipro region, as it's called now, didn't fall to the separatists. So Kolomoisky went in there and became governor, then his own people succeeded him as mayor and governor of the region, and they made sure that it stayed loyal to Kiev. Um, But that relationship between Poroshenko and Kolomoisky fell apart. Uh, It seems because, as a sort of power struggle, Kolomoisky was pushing for more influence, more financial power, um, and, and Poroshenko resisted that to the point where in 2016, uh, Kolomoisky's bank, which was the biggest bank, uh, still is the biggest bank, in fact, in Ukraine, Privat Bank, was nationalized because the uh, the, the um, uh, financial authorities here, regulators, said that it was on the point of bankruptcy. Kolomoisky himself is being invested for all kinds of alleged um, wrongdoing connected with the bank, and he now spends his time outside Ukraine in Israel and Switzerland. He His channel does show um, Zelensky's um, comedy shows. And the the channel has clearly been pro-Zelensky and anti-Poroshenko all the way through the campaign. Um, Now, this is a major question because they are business partners and have been business partners for years. Um, Zelensky insists, and Kolomoisky says the same, that uh, there is no political connection, there's no sort of political debt owed by by Zelensky to Kolomoisky. But we'll see. 
people know how pol how powerful the oligarchs are here. They know how they've influenced politics ever since uh, independence in '91. So people are very very worried about the kind of strings that Kolomoisky may at least try to pull behind the scenes. Uh, interestingly, and this was a a, a huge development really. Uh, which perhaps got swallowed up in all the pre-election uh, anticipation and, and, and stories. But just before the election, I think it was the Thursday before the vote, um, a court here in Kiev ruled that that nationalization of Privat Bank was illegal. And so it opens the way for Kolomoisky to potentially try and reclaim that bank or reclaim um, or claim lots of compensation for his losses over the nationalization. Now it's being challenged, it's being appealed by the authorities here. We'll see, see how that all plays out. But um, that is probably the biggest question mark right now hanging over uh, Zelensky. And it's certainly something that Poroshenko emphasized. Poroshenko said openly that he believes uh, Zelensky will be a puppet of Kolomoisky once he's in power. So, uh, if, yeah, if, if um, Zelensky's serious about his, his uh, anti-corruption credentials, he's going to have to show very strongly that, that none of his decisions are in any way influenced by the oligarch or his allies. Finally, Dan, you, obviously the election was a humiliation for Poroshenko, um, but you have suggested and you, you hinted out there earlier that the, the process itself was, was good for Ukrainian democracy. Is that, was that the feeling on the ground reporting there in the last few weeks? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's a mixed pic picture, pic picture. Sorry, it's a mixed picture to some extent because um, you can argue that it's uh, it was it wasn't great for for Ukrainian democracy in the election process that uh, Zelensky could be so vague throughout the whole thing that he did avoid debates until the big final one that he didn't answer lots of tough questions that were waiting for him he didn't uh, agree to in depth interviews with either. Uh, local or foreign journalists. He did his best to avoid those. But at the same time, um, the process itself was uh, amazingly uh, peaceful. There were lots of fears over potential violence from far-right groups that were even uh, acting as election monitors, fears that Russia could try and interfere in some way. We didn't see any of that. The whole process went very, very smoothly. Um, when you look at the kind of technologies around the, the election. You look at the uh, pre-election surveys and you look at the opinion polls and you look at the exit polls. They predicted the, the actual results very, very closely. So it seems like they are reliable and they work very well in Ukraine. Um, the, and the monitors delivered a, a very positive verdict, verdict on the way everything went. And then, of course, you have um, uh, Poroshenko's behavior when he lost. He made a very gracious concession he said he would uh, help Zelensky in any way if he needed any help and advice in, in keeping Ukraine on track. So um, I think it's certainly been, in, in that sense, it's been very, very positive for Ukraine. Uh, and particularly in, as, as an example, this is something that, that strikingly Zelensky highlighted in his, in his victory speech on Sunday night. He said um, to all the people in, uh, to all the, the former Soviet states, look at us. We, we show that anything's possible. Um, and the fact that Ukrainians, certainly in, in, when they're living here next to Russia, um, which has been dominated by one man for 20 years, and where people are told the key message is that uh, people should be afraid of change, because if change comes, things are going to be worse. Um, in Ukraine, people have showed, again, five years on from the revolution, that they're not afraid of change, that they are uh, absolutely committed to democracy. And this peaceful change of power, this peaceful handover, 
um, I think really does uh, show that democracy is well entrenched here um, and that people will do uh, everything necessary to defend it. If Zelensky does let them down also, um, they won't be afraid to replace him with someone else. Dalian McLaughlin in Kiev, thanks for joining us. Thanks to today's contributors, Dennis Staunton and Dalian McLaughlin. Today's podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan. I'm Dave McKechnie. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on whichever platform you use, or at irishtimes.com.